0: However, if you don't actually own a Bible, the Bible in the aisle is yours to keep. So, um, And that's from us here at Follow, and so we'd love to bless you in that way. But, um, And if you are reading from the Church Bible, um, we can turn to uh, page 672, uh, so Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her son and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left, is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I'll turn over to page seven hundred and seven for the second reading, which is Luke nine twenty-three. But he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me.
1: Next five weeks at Follow Baptist Church, we're going to be doing a DNA series. It's a chance to look at essential things for us as a church and what is most important. Each week we're going to look at a different core value. We're going to unpack that and we hope and pray that you're inspired by who God's called us to be and what he wants us to do.
0: Discipleship is all about following. At Follow Baptist Church, we want to be followers because we believe that there is no greater pursuit than a relationship with Christ and that it is only in that relationship that we find lasting peace, true happiness, as well as purpose and meaning for life. We also know discipleship costs. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves or take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. As well as discipleship, we want to be a church that releases gospel-compelled leadership. Our conviction is to lead effectively. We will need to follow Christ intentionally. We want to know Him and be His representatives in our local community and beyond. To do this effectively, we need leadership. It is our aim to multiply God-honoring, gospel-centered leaders through teaching of the Word and the power of the Spirit, church-wide leadership training and development, ministry opportunities, MCGs, which is missional community groups, one-on-one discipleship, Causes aim to equip God's people to various stages of life, faith, and community engagement. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Good
1: morning, everyone. It's great to be here this morning and we're up to week two today of our DNA series, uh, focusing on what are the most important things for us as a church, what are the key focuses, what are the DNA Um, that makes up Follow Baptist Church. Last week, we had week one, obviously, which is usually before number two. Um, So we did week one last week, and we focused in on Bible teaching and training. And so if you weren't here last week, you can listen to that on the website. But we talked about why is it important to have Bible teaching and training? And the conclusion we came to is because it is God's word, and it's in God's word that we encounter Jesus. And as we learn scripture, we learn who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and how we can follow him. And so we want to teach and train the Bible um, so that we can live God's word, not just for information, but for transformation. We want to see God change our life by his word and by his spirit through the person of Jesus Christ. At Follow, we say if our theology doesn't go from our head to our heart to our feet, as we go and share the gospel, it's an incomplete theology and it's an immature spirituality. And so we want to hear at Follow Baptist Church, follow Jesus by living out God's word. Now, this week, during the week, I watched a Christian movie. It was called Not a Fan. anyone seen that movie? It was a big movie a few years ago, a couple of years ago. Um, but it's all about the difference between being a fan or a follower of Jesus. And it's uh, sort of hosted by a pastor guy, and, and he tells a few stories uh, within the movie. And there's one part where he uses a very effective illustration on applying the Bible. He said, imagine a couple decide to go away for a couple of months and so before they went, they decided that they would ask another young couple to house sit for them. A lot of people house sit, it's pretty common these days. So before they left, they wrote down some detailed instructions. Uh, the instructions covered things like how to feed and care for their pets, that the downstairs toilet uh, leaked if you uh, didn't get the button to, to release after you'd pressed it, um, when bin night was, how to use the dishwasher, how to use the lawn mower, all of those important things when you go away. And so they chuffed off on their holiday for a couple of months and uh, a couple of months later they came back and as soon as they drove in the street, they noticed that something had gone incredibly wrong. The first thing they saw is that the grass was up above their waist. Uh, speaking of waste, all the bins were overflowing. There was rubbish everywhere. It was clear that the rubbish had been chucked out in the bins but hadn't gone out on the curb. And so the front yard was a complete mess. And so they quickly parked and They rushed inside and the first thing they noticed is that there were dishes everywhere. There was mould, there were dishes on the floor, there were broken cups and saucers. It was a giant mess. They quickly ran downstairs to the basement. They noticed that the toilet had been leaking for a couple of months. It was completely flooded. And then the worst thing is they rushed to the backyard and when they looked out in the backyard where their pets used to be, now they saw a pet cemetery. All their pets were dead. They hadn't been fed, they hadn't been cared for. And so you can imagine this young couple was pretty upset, a little bit angry. Now imagine them in that moment. And as they're thinking thoughts about the young couple they left in charge, that same young couple comes bounding out of the bedroom. And they go all excited. They go, those instructions you wrote down, they were incredible. Oh, they were so good. Uh, We love those instructions. Every night before bed, we sat down, we talked about them, we prayed over them, we even memorized some of them. We loved them so much that we invited friends over each week, and we did a small group where we looked at the instructions, and we all prayed about them, and they were wonderful. We loved your instructions. Now, can you imagine what the couple would think at that moment? I think they'd think something like this, away from me, you evildoers. Don't ever want to see you again. And Jesus says something similar. He says, when he returns, many people will claim to know him. They'll say, didn't we do amazing things in your name? We cast out demons, we healed the sick, we did all this great stuff, but I'll say to them, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. Why? Because they may have done a whole lot of stuff. They may have known the Bible from cover to cover, but they certainly didn't know or follow Jesus. And so we want to teach and train the Bible, not just for head knowledge that will puff us up, But that we would have a theological landslide from our head to our heart as we learn about who Jesus is, what he's done, and how we can live our lives for him. And so, as we learn what it is to follow Christ, our life is changed from the inside out. And what should naturally flow is a life of discipleship, and from discipleship comes great leadership. And that brings us to week two of our DNA series. Discipleship and leadership development, which is our second key focus as a church. And I see this particular area as critical. it's no secret that we uh, really desire to keep growing as a church, and I'm blown away by uh, the growth that we've had so far since we started, and so many new faces that we're now journeying with that that we weren't journeying with seven months ago. Um, Next week, we've got 38 uh, new members coming into membership, which will take our membership to 93 people which is phenomenal for a church that's only seven months old. But the truth is that healthy things grow. And we don't want to just keep growing in numbers. We want to grow in spiritual maturity. And so as we grow in width, we want to also grow in depth, being people that truly follow Jesus. And this is where discipleship and leadership are absolutely critical. Now, to be a disciple is to be a follower. That'd be a great name for a church, don't you reckon? Picture this, Follow Baptist Church. If only someone would think of that, it would be a great name for a church. Uh, I think, still at this stage, we're the only church in the world called Follow Church. Now, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, I'm an optimist, so I'm glass half full. And so I say it's a good thing. We're pioneering something new, and by the name of our church, we're declaring what we want to be. We want to be followers of Jesus. That's who we want to be. We want to follow Him in every area. Of our lives, but prior to launching Follow Baptist Church, uh, another leader at another church, um, I gave him our vision booklet to look through, and he looked through it and and he said, "Look, I have one question, and the question is this: Your leadership booklet says that you want to have a key focus of your church um, developing leadership, and you say that uh, you want leaders who are gospel inspired." Um, spirit-led people. And so if one of the key focuses of your church is to develop leadership, uh, to lead, why do you call your church follow? Now, for me, I was surprised at the statement because I think the statement is a complete misunderstanding of what Christian leadership is. Because if we're not first disciples following Christ, we won't ever be effective Christian leaders in his church. To be a disciple is to be a follower. There's no use even talking about leadership in the church if we don't first understand discipleship. True gospel leadership always flows from our willingness to follow Christ in every area of our lives. And so leadership and discipleship in the church are not two separate things. They're a package. They they go hand in hand and leadership actually flows from discipleship. And so we can't say, hey, I want to be a leader. I want to be a leader in the church, or I want to be a leader as a Christian man or woman in my workplace or wherever God puts me. But but I don't really want to do the discipleship part, uh, the following Jesus part. Bit overrated, a bit difficult. That's kind of for the fanatics. I just want to lead. Uh, well, it doesn't work that way. And when it does, it, it certainly doesn't work. And so you can't have leadership and discipleship together in the same way. You can't say, "Well, I want to be a disciple of Jesus," but really I'm just not a leader. I don't want to lead. The truth is that if you are truly a disciple, you will be leading because you're modeling to the world around you a different way of living. And so by your lifestyle, at the very least, you are leading and showing people a different life because you're following Jesus who says, I am the life. And so whether it's in your family or your friendship circle or your workplace or your university or your school or even in your church, you are leading people into a lifestyle of discipleship by modeling that to those around you. If you're a disciple or truly a disciple of Jesus, one of your roles is to multiply disciples. And so as a disciple, you are a leader. And so for some of you, you might have to rethink what leadership actually is because it's not always something with a title or a position or, or anything like that. It's sometimes just by the way that we live our lives. So when it comes to leadership wisdom, we have so many places in the world that we could look, don't we? We have uh, great business leaders. We have intellectual minds. We have entrepreneurs. We have world leaders. We have politicians. I'm joking. I'm just being sarcastic. No, no, really. There are some good politicians out there. And so we can look at all these different people and it would be easier to say, those people present what leadership should be like or what leadership is like. And there's no doubt that sometimes we can look to those people and, and they can be great examples of leadership and we can glean some stuff from them, some wisdom from them. But it's also true that the Bible says that we should no longer conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so when it comes to leadership, our ultimate role model is not found in the sporting arena, it's not found in politics, it's not found in business, but our ultimate example of leadership is found in Christ Jesus. And so it's so important that we look to him to know how to lead. And over the years, I've um, observed times in church life where where people have led more like they would in the world than they uh, would if they were following Christ, and it always ends up with big issues. Some churches create boards, and they fill those boards with people that are brilliant business minds that can make lots of money, that can run companies, but they don't necessarily have the spiritual qualifications uh, to lead the church. And for me, that should be the one non-negotiable of leadership in the church, that, that if you're a leader, you first need to be a follower of Jesus, someone who's growing in your faith, someone who loves the word, someone who is led by the spirit. And the important, the reason that's so important is that a leader is an overseer. And so if you're an overseer, there are people that you are meant to be caring for, and if you're not caring for them in a Christ-like way, it can cause incredible damage in people's lives. How many people do you meet these days? And they say this, they say, yeah, I used to go to church. Hear it all the time, all the time. And often I'll dig a little bit deeper, and there's so many times that I discover that, yes, they went to church. Sometimes they were very committed in their church but they've been subjected to poor leadership, insecure, manipulative, authoritarian, unaccountable, unwise, even abusive leadership in the church. And as a result, they no longer go to church. Even more tragically, many of them no longer even follow the Lord. And that is so incredibly sad. And it's often because so-called church leaders who were meant to be representing Jesus often get their leadership more in line with the patterns of this world than they do with the life of Christ. People should never come to church broken and leave shattered. I've seen that happen so many times, and and in my opinion, that is inexcusable that that would happen. People can leave the church because they they don't like the vision or uh, they don't like the music style. By the way, Rihanna led worship for the first time ever today, and she did a great job. Great job. She's doing this. She's going... She knows it's true. <laughs> you can leave a church for all sorts of reasons, and the preacher's boring, and that's probably pretty relevant here. There's many reasons why you could leave a church, and some of those reasons are valid. Some of them are poorer reasons than other, but you should never leave because of poor leadership that has hurt or broken you as a person. People should never leave shattered at the hands of church leadership that they're meant to trust. So that's why godly leadership is so critical. Church should be a safe place. I don't mean safe as in um, we never step out in mission, we never take risks, we never step out in faith. If you're looking for that kind of church, you're probably in the wrong church. I'm not talking about that kind of safety. I'm talking about this should be a place where you can come and, and experience healing and feel embraced and loved and an increase of joy and hope and belonging. And so it's imperative that we raise up and release godly leadership, both men and women, into their God-given gifts and passion. Leaders who are spirit-led, leaders who are self-sacrificial, leaders who are self-denying, transparent and humble, not lording it over people, but rather compelled by the love and example of Christ. We're going to do a whole series on this soon, but the New Testament gives really clear qualifications for Christian leadership. You can look at that in in places like 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1, and you'll get a snapshot of what leadership is meant to be like, and you'll see very clearly and very quickly that it has more focus on character than it does on competency. And so we we want leaders, obviously, who are competent, but never at the expense of character or calling. Now, having said all of that, the leaders that follow Baptists won't always get it right, there's going to be times where we make mistakes, where we fall short of our own standards, let alone God's. And in those times, we're going to actually have to trust you for grace and forgiveness and mercy that you would realize that we're just human and that we do fall short. But I've experienced firsthand the impacts of very poor leadership in churches. And so I'm passionate that we don't replicate that because there are many people no longer walking with God because of church leadership not following in the footsteps Christ. And so to know what true leadership is in the church, but also just in life as a Christian man or woman, Jesus is our model. And so the two passages we looked at today from Matthew and Luke really represent leadership in the kingdom of God and also discipleship. Now, God laid these two passages on my heart a number of weeks ago now for this particular sermon, Um, but it wasn't until I sat down this week to start studying and look at these two passages that I realized. How incredibly similar they are! And so today we're going to look at Matthew chapter twenty-first, and then we're going to, uh, which focuses in on leadership in the kingdom, and then we're going to go back to Luke chapter nine, which hones in on discipleship. And hopefully by the end of this message, you will see that there are great similarities that they go together, and it's important that we see that. In Matthew twenty, we read the story of James and John, um, and John's mother uh, sticking up for her kids, and part of this is kind of admirable and natural, and, but also a little bit fleshy. Uh, we always want what's best for our kids, don't we? Uh, my kids are the cutest kids in the world, right? And you say the same thing about your kids. And, and even if someone has the ugliest kid you've ever seen, they still think their kid is the, the best looking kid you've ever seen. And it proves that there's something wrong with their eyesight or that love is truly blind. And that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But we always want what's best for our kids and I, I feel this rising up in me when I go to the play centre. It's always like a wall when you go in that place. There's, there's people everywhere and, um, some days it's absolutely packed and, and, um, our daughters are old enough to now go and do their own thing. But, uh, Lenny, I still, uh, take up onto the play equipment. And so we'll climb up into obscenely small holes and I'll try and squeeze through them and, and we'll get to the top where there's slides and bouncy castles and, and all of that. And sometimes I'll be lining up in line for a slide and I'm trying to teach Lenny what it is to wait your turn. And, um, but you know what it's like in those centers. There's many great kids, but there's also several feral kids. And, and when I say feral kids, are, some people are slinking in the chair, that might be my kid. Um, I mean, those kids that are pushing and pulling and punching and hurting and crying and yelling and screaming and, and just making the whole experience quite miserable for everybody else. And these feral kids never stand in line. They always push to the front, don't they? And uh, usually I just put up with that, but when my kid's waiting in line, and I'm standing next to him, and I hear one of the feral kids coming, I can feel it rise up in me. <laughs> and I know they're coming, so I look behind me and it's like 10 pins. All the other kids are just falling over as this feral kid pushes through to get to the front. And so I kind of stand there, but I sort of stretch over a little bit like this. <laughs> Kid's not getting past me. Not when I've got my little boy here waiting for a turn. And then sure enough, a few seconds later, you feel them trying to push through and I'm sort of just pushing my knee over a little bit. And I look down, I go, yes, mate, can I help you? I want to go on the side. That's a line, it's not decoration. Your place is at the end of the line. And they look at you like, I'm not doing that. And I'm like, now. And usually they go to the end of the line. You get the particularly fair ones who don't, and that's another story. I won't finish that story, but... Generally, they go back to the end of the line, but I feel it raising up because there's my kid and I want what's best for my kid. And so there's something natural about sticking up for our kids and wanting what's best for them, whether that's going down the slide at the play center or just advancing in different areas of life. And so James and John's mother is a little bit like this. She wants to get to the front of the queue. And so she goes to Jesus with a request and she feels like it's a big request, but it's actually even bigger than what she understands. So in verse 20, she goes with her sons. Now, that's kind of a pathetic statement in and of itself, isn't it? Two big, strong fishermen, <laughs> cowering behind what I can only imagine to be a short, kind of fiery Jewish woman. And she's going up asking a favor on behalf of her pathetic sons who are cowering behind her. Uh, just a mental note for you guys, not a great way to make friends. In verse 24, the rest of the disciples, they're pretty ticked about this situation. It says they were indignant with those two guys, for sending mummy to do their dirty work. <laughs> Nevertheless, in verse 20, mum goes up with her request. And a request is this. Jesus says, what is it that you want? And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. What she's asking for is that her sons have the top positions of leadership in God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. She's obviously thinking earthly leadership, uh, earthly kingdom. This mother is presenting a worldly perspective of leadership, but Jesus is about to teach her and present to her a countercultural kingdom perspective of leadership. You see, this woman was still expecting and anticipating the Messiah that all the Jews were waiting for. They expected him to be a powerful political military leader that would lead the Jews against the Roman Empire, overthrowing them and setting up the kingdom of God on earth. And when that happened, what she is wanting is that her sons would be in the top leadership positions with Jesus. What she's doing, I think, is really quite cheeky. And I think what is motivating her is that she wants her sons to be in the queue before the other disciples, but particularly before Peter. When you look at the Gospels, Jesus had 72 disciples, and within that 72, there's a closer 12 disciples, but within the 12, there is three closest disciples. And they are Peter, James, and John. James and John are the two sons in this story today. And so what she is trying to do is to get this three closest disciples whittled down to two. And so you see in the New Testament, some of the key times of Jesus' life, he takes just these three people with him. The Mount of transfiguration, when he goes to meet his father, he takes Peter, James, and John. The garden of Gethsemane, he takes Peter, James, and John. And so this woman is trying to whittle that three down to make it only two, and she is saying that, I want those two to be my boys. Forget Peter. I want my boys to be granted the positions of authority, sitting on your right and on your left. I want them to be higher than Peter. I want them to be your go-to men, to climb the ladder before Peter to be his boss, to have the title, to be the generals, to be the second in charge, to be the commanders behind the chief, to be the next in line when your kingdom is established on earth. Now, this time of year, um, AFL teams are appointing their leadership teams. Every team is going through that process right now, except Essendon, they don't have any players. Um, (laughs) Sorry, that was a really cheap shot. Sorry, Auntie Heather. Sorry. (laughs) They do have a captain, he's just St Kilda Reject, but that's another, <laughs> another story. Every team is going through this process right now of, of getting their leadership teams together. And, and when they get through that process and decide on the leaders, the last thing they do is, uh, is they usually take a photo of the people that have appointed, uh, they've appointed as the leaders and then they post it uh, to their members or on social media. And, and you'll know the photos. Usually you'll have the captain out the front and he'll be standing with his arms crossed looking really serious like this year is the year to win a premiership. Uh, St Kilda captain's been doing this for a hundred years, never worked, (laughs) but they're standing at the front and then usually uh, just behind them, about a step back on the right, you have got the vice captain. He's standing there also ready for war, looking really serious and on the left, you've got the deputy vice captain. He's there looking really serious as well and so when you look at that photo, it's a visual snapshot or representation of who is leading that football club and essentially this is what the mum wants. If there was a photo for the kingdom, uh, she would want Jesus at the front looking like he's ready to go and establish this kingdom. But just behind him on the right and left would be her two sons, James and John. It becomes clear in the passage that Jesus' kingdom is not the kingdom that she expects. The kingdom she's expecting is not the kingdom Jesus is talking about. And it's clear that there is a disconnect in the two. In the previous verses in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus had just finished telling the disciples that uh, as the leader of this kingdom, he was going to have to die and then be raised back to life. Now, it's clear that uh, either A, this lady didn't get it. She completely missed that. uh, That's the best case scenario. Or at worst, she'd heard that Jesus was going to die. And so she wants to make sure that her sons are in the leadership positions. So when he's gone, they will be the ones leading the kingdom. So it's very clear that they're talking about different things. She's thinking of a kingdom of this world, but Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, which is not of this world. She's thinking anticipated Messiah who will lead them in earthly political and military victory against Rome, but Jesus is actually going to conquer something so much greater than Rome. He's going to conquer the power of sin and death, but not through a political or military victory, but in an upside-down kingdom, he's going to do it by dying on a cross. And in the greatest of ironies... Jesus' greatest defeat in inverted commas was in fact his greatest victory as he willingly laid down his life and on the third day rose again showing that he had power even over sin and death. And the great news of the gospel is this, that in him, through a relationship with him, you and I also both all have power over sin and death in Christ because he's defeated those things. That's what it is to be part of his kingdom. That's what the gospel is all about. That it's not about an earthly thing on earth, but it's even greater than what we could ever imagine because the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish upon his return, even though it's on earth, it will be eternal. And so she didn't understand all of this. And the reason she didn't understand all of this is because of her idea of leadership. Her idea of leadership was shaped more by the world around her that focuses in on power and position than it was on the life of Christ who talks about sacrifice and service. And Jesus responds to her request in verse 22 by saying, You don't know what you're asking. And then he says, Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Now, interestingly, uh, the question was initially asked in the singular, the mummy went and asked the question, but now Jesus is redirecting his question to the two boys. And the answer now comes in the plural. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? They step forward confidently and they say, yes, we can. Sounds a bit like Bob the Builder, doesn't it? Can you fix it? Yes, we can. Can you drink the cup? Yes, we can. And so they are boldly, confidently saying they can do what Jesus is doing. And so what is Jesus talking about when he mentions the cup? Well, he's not just talking about a bad drink like Diet Fanta. He's not drinking about. He's not talking about sculling a, a, a cup of Panadol or or Durotus like I have this week. He's not even talking about enduring uh, international roast coffee. You know, when you go to someone's house and they say, "Would you like a coffee?" and you go, "Yes, love a coffee," then they say that fatal sentence: "Is international roast okay?" It's never okay. But I'm too polite to say no. And so I say, yes, that'd be fine in my head thinking I should have just taken the water (laughs) when it was offered. He's not talking about just a bad beverage. The cup he's talking about is representative of suffering and of God's wrath. Jesus is saying, if you want to lead in the kingdom, uh, are you first willing to follow me even if it means suffering and sacrifice? In Isaiah 51 verse 17, it says, awake, awake. Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just six chapters after what we're reading today in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is about to be arrested. And his death on the cross is imminent. It's a time of incredible sorrow, deep anguish. It says that he's sweating drops of blood. Now, all of us have been stressed, but I doubt there's anyone here today who has been so stressed that you come to the point of of sweating drops of blood. It's a significant moment in his life. And in that passage, he cries out and he says, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will be done, but yours. The question Jesus is really asking these guys is, Can you absorb the wrath of God on behalf of all humanity? Can you be the perfect, blameless sacrifice for the sin of the entire human race? meaning that God's anger towards us because of our sin would be diverted from us to his son who would die in our place, meaning that when we have relationship with him, he's already paid the price and so we can be forgiven and set free in Christ. He's saying to these guys, can you do that? The answer, of course, is no. But in verse 23, Jesus says, you will actually drink from my cup in one way. And in one way they did because church history tells us that they both did suffer incredibly for following Christ and they both ultimately died for being disciples of his. But they couldn't do what only Jesus came to do. And so Jesus says, I can't grant your request to be on the right and be on the left in the kingdom because it's not my positions to give. Only the Father can designate those places. But then Jesus goes on to use this situation to, to teach them what true leadership actually looks like in his kingdom. He says these words. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles in the world around you, they lord it over other people. Their high officials exercise authority over people. Now there's five very important words I want you to listen to today. That's what the world does, but he says, not So with you instead. That's what the world does. That's what the world says leadership is like. But in my kingdom, it's very different. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many you aspire to leadership, Jesus says, here's what it looks like. And what it looks like when we follow Jesus in discipleship is that it's characterized by sacrifice and service. Sounds very different to much of the leadership we see in our world today, isn't it? Where it's so often about climbing the ladder, getting more money, getting the title, having the authority, doing whatever it, it takes to get ahead, even if it means stretching our moral boundaries a little bit. Jesus is saying, not in the church, not as a Christian. Leadership is upside down. If you want to be great, then serve. If you want to be first, then become like a slave. Leadership in God's kingdom is very different. Leaders are the ones who become the servants. They don't have the servants. They become the servants. Leaders put others First. Leaders sacrifice, leaders lay their lives down and the ultimate example for us to look to is Jesus who says in verse 28 that he himself, the king of the universe, the creator of all things, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Surely if it's good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for you and it's good enough for me. This is where the similarities between discipleship and leadership can be clearly seen. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, we've talked about leadership. This is now talking about discipleship. And it says this, one of my life verses. It says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. So to be a leader, we read, you must serve and become like a slave. To be a disciple, you must deny yourself. To be a leader, you must drink the cup. To be a disciple, you must carry your cross daily. To be a leader, you must lay your life down. To be a disciple, you must follow Jesus who laid his life down for all of humanity. This is what you should expect from the leaders that follow Baptist Church. This is what you need to keep us accountable in. These are the kind of leaders we are praying to develop in and through our church. Today, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not really a leader. I don't aspire to be a leader. But you're a disciple if you're a follower of Jesus. He says, come, pick up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. And so we're all called to be disciples. And so I want you to ask the question of yourself today. How does your life of discipleship stack up to Christ's definition? Is it a discipleship of convenience? You come to church once a month or read your Bible when you feel guilty enough to or you know, share your faith and serve when it's convenient or easy or all the stars align. Throw a few coins in the bucket as long as it doesn't cost you anything? Is it a discipleship of convenience or is it a discipleship of sacrifice? Jesus said those who want to find their lives will lose them, but those who lose their lives on account of me will find life, and he says it's life and life to the full. The question we need to all take with us today is this, are we willing to count the costs of discipleship in our lives? When God asks us to stand up for what's right in our workplace. When he leads us to share the gospel with friends and family members who don't know him. When he prompts us to serve God in ministry here at Follow with the gifts and abilities God has given you or perhaps overseas in mission or interstate in mission or maybe locally here serving your local community. What will our response be? When he asks us to give up time, energy, energy and finance, how will we respond? When he asks us to forgive the unforgivable, love the unlovable, care for the broken, what will our lives demonstrate? My prayer for us as a church is that part of our DNA is that, that we would be people who are leaders, but first of all, that we are people who are disciples. And my prayer is this, that our lives would demonstrate something that is Christ-like. So I want to encourage you at the start of 2016 to reevaluate your own life. And be honest. Don't think, I hope the person next to me is listening to this message. Think, what is God saying to me today? What areas of my life am I holding on too tightly that I won't let God be completely in charge of? Is it my finance? Is it my time? Is it my family? Is it my friendships? Is it my hobbies? What are the areas that, that God has kind of been pushed off the throne and I've made those things more important than they should be? Which are the areas that I need to hand over and say, Jesus, they're yours. I want to follow you no matter what it costs me. Through suffering, through service, through sacrifice. Jesus, I live for you. And there's nothing greater to live for, church. We can waste all our lives chasing all the things the world chases. But there's only one thing that will mean anything one day. And that's, are we following Jesus? Are we going to be in his presence forever? Because there's no greater joy. There's no greater gift than what Jesus has done for us. On the cross. Let's rediscover discipleship this year, as Jesus defines it, to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, and to follow Him daily. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray.